You're in the water loop. Hey, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to tell you a story about High Sierra Showerheads, who I'm proud to have as a sponsor of this podcast, particularly because they make incredibly water-efficient showerheads. I've talked with owner David Malcolm about growing up in California, learning about the importance of water and energy efficiency from his father. David has been designing high-efficiency nozzles for agriculture and golf courses for the past 30 years. The golf course people actually came to him wanting a nozzle that produced a uniform spray but was water efficient. So David went in and designed a nozzle that explodes a low-pressure stream of water into a shower of large, powerful droplets. David actually thought, this would make a great showerhead, and that's how High Sierra Showerheads was born. And nobody has their nozzle technology. It's patented, and you get a great shower while saving water. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to be talking a lot about water in California for this episode. I am very happy to be joined by Felicia Marcus. She is a fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program and a founding member of the Water Policy Group. Felicia, I'm glad we caught up for a podcast conversation. Delighted to join you. Yeah, I'm really... uh, Extra excited for this also because of your extensive background. Really amazing. You are the regional administrator for EPA's uh, Southwest region there, Region 9. You were the president of the Board of Public Works for the City of Los Angeles, a Western director for NRDC, and also executive vice president and COO for the Trust for Public Land. So an incredible breadth and depth of experience in water and conservation and sustainability. Um, look forward to hearing your thoughts here. Um, let's start with a huge question. What is the state of California's water? Um, that is an existential question, if there <laughs> ever was one. Right. Yeah, I would say it's in flux. I think um, we're in the process of transitioning into the 21st century. It is an interesting mix of challenge, uh, progress, opportunity. There are areas where we're I would say we're cutting edge in the country and there are areas where we're lagging uh, other parts of the country. And I think uh, those lagging parts are interesting in that they give us an opportunity for upside um, Mm -hmm. to be able to meet the challenges that we're going to have. And we have challenges today, but the challenges are only going to get worse under climate change. And fortunately, I would say um, uh, in the Brown administration, because we had a governor who was always looking 30 years ahead of his time. Remember, this is the governor who um, ushered in the amazing energy efficiency uh, revolution 30 years ago, and he came in and saw the same thing for water in terms of climate change. And uh, with the challenge, an incredible challenge, where up to a a third or 30% on average of our storage in the whole system is in our snowpack, few degrees temperature rise, you lose your snowpack. You end up with more flooding in the spring, less snowpack to hold back the water until it's most needed in the spring and the summer where it replenishes reservoirs and refills streams and is used for agriculture and human use. So it's a 
a nightmare coming down. I would say it's a freight train of pain coming at us down mm. the tracks and no time like the present. So we really ushered in a, a shift in California water from a rather, I wouldn't say blase, but I, I'd say uh, an, a, a, a sense of water was for fighting over to water is still for fighting over. <laughs> but, it, but we needed to get in action, and I'm happy to talk about that a little bit. So I think we're very much in motion in the state towards doing a lot of the things we need to do to be sustainable in the long term. That's not going to say that it's all smooth sailing, but I think it's a much more dynamic atmosphere than we had uh, even 10 years ago. And I think a lot of people don't realize uh, that California depends on that snowpack. They think California, they think they think the coast and, and you know, the sunny weather and don't really realize how important those Sierra Nevadas are to the, to the, the water supply there. You, you mentioned lagging. What, do you, where, where, what are some of the ways you think California might lag behind other states in water policy and management? Well, I think in our water rights system, which is fairly antiquated, and it's based on a 19th century mining model that's not unusual in the West, where water was seen as something for extraction and production. The value of leaving it in the stream wasn't um, recognized at the time, and so they they adopted mining rules of first in time, first in right, which again is you know a way of allocating shortage in a system like like we have in the West, where we have very variable hydrology, and that's true in all of the arid West, only more so in California than even the other Western states. Which means we have these huge swings where some years are dry, some years are wet. We've got uh, the water falls in uh, the season when it's not most used. It doesn't fall in the arena where, um, in the areas where it's most used. So you have this temporal um, difference between when water falls and where it falls and when it's used. And so the, the key thing is the multiple years. And so in order for modern California to exist, it's only because we have this massive system of storage and conveyance, which can hold water uh, and then move it vast distances, because over half of our population lives hundreds of miles away from where the water comes from, and in fact, doesn't even know where it comes from in many instances, which is in some ways an absolute miracle of modern social, historical, political evolution. The flip side is that folks uh, don't have the same acute sense of how perilous it is and um, the need to do things differently. Obviously, the drought we had changed that. So so our water rights system um, is based on this first in time, first in right. It hasn't had to be implemented that often because we've had this infrastructure that kind of smooths out the ups and downs. And when we hit the, the last major drought just a few years ago, this is when I was the head of the state water board in California, the Brown administration, we, we all of a sudden had to actually start cutting off people, juniors, at a rate that was much greater than they had ever actually seen before. And we didn't really have the tools to be able to do it because we didn't have great water data at our disposal. We didn't have uh, it at a precise enough level to be able to actually implement the system. But we, you know, we've made improvements I can talk about since then. Yeah, I, I figure that that drought was a big driver um, for public awareness, like you mentioned. It, it, it developed that awareness for some people of where the water actually come from, comes from and that it's just not endless. Um, exactly. But then it, it, how did it really change the approach to, to management? 
Well, the drought, you know, was the wake up call of wake up calls for us. And it, it was for a couple of reasons, because as I talked about that variable hydrology, we also had a period of over 100 years and since we started recording water, where we had more or less a three to four year drought cycle. The thing is, and of course we all should have realized it, we, you know, we built our system of these reservoirs and conveyances to try and be able to deal with a three to four year drought cycle, which we can in most instances, except when you get to small communities on shallow wells under imperiled groundwater. And that's another issue where we made huge um, strides that we can talk about. Um, but the geophysical record makes it clear, tree stumps and corings, uh, that we've had 40 year, 400 year and even longer drought. So it may well be that the last hundred and some odd years were um, an anomaly. In fact, they were in terms of how wet they were. We also had the wake up call of Australia where they had the same more or less three to four year drought cycle. And then they hit what they call their millennial drought in the middle of the nineties that lasted for 10 or 12 years, depending on where you are. For the first three years, they thought, well, surely it'll rain. They didn't worry too much, just like we tended to not worry so much in the early set of dry years. And then it, it didn't rain for like six years much. And then finally it rained a little now, you know, few. And then they had the three worst years yet. And they were in a world of hurt, having to put billions of dollars into expensive desal facilities that they didn't use because it rained before they were finished being built, but they still had to pay for them. They finally, a decade later, later turned on some of them. I mean, Perth is, a, is a, in the West is the driest spot there, so they've been using it. Um, but they said, don't wait, because this could hit you tomorrow. So as a result, in the Brown administration, we declared uh, the drought early by many people's um, views. In fact, the only time it had been declared earlier was by the same governor 30 years before where he declared it two weeks earlier um, in the in the drought. And we went very quickly uh, into action precisely because we had this water action plan that we had done for climate. Hmm. And so where we saw climate taking us in 10, 20, 30 years as an emergency to begin with, we now had a true emergency and it was an all of the above approach that started with, you know, conservation and efficiency first and foremost as the smartest, cheapest, fastest way to extend water resources, moving through recycling, stormwater capture, desal in the appropriate circumstances, but also the other things we needed to do to have a resilient California, safe drinking water for all. We had passed a human right to water um, statute, the first in the country in 2012 didn't have any teeth, but it had policy direction. So let's go and figure out what teeth we need for that. Um, um, managing our groundwater basins. We had been overdrafting our groundwater basins in some parts of the state to the tune of 2 million acre feet a year. Um, that's a problem in and of itself because of crumbling infrastructure and losing your storage space. It's also an issue for dealing with climate because our groundwater basins are the only thing that can make up for that loss of um, uh, uh, snowpack storage. So it became a state interest. So we did pass historic groundwater management legislation, put a lot of money into all kinds of integrated water management, all of the above, but also um, tried to figure out how to deal with our 
San Francisco Bay Delta issues, which is the, the hub of a big part of our water system. The other big part, if you think about Southern California, it's equally dependent upon the Colorado River system, which is managed federally. Um, and of course, efficiency and all of that um, plays into helping us be more resilient there and a host of other things, preparing for floods, because we're going to have greater flooding. I mean, just a lot of things on this list of things to do. And, and it was mostly important because it's it was an all of the above strategy and an action strategy that said, look, you can keep debating the perfect being the enemy of the good, but we are <laughs> going to get into action and go. And so we just got into motion on all of these things. And I can talk about what we did, particularly at the, from the state board on conservation and recycling, which are two of the things I'm most proud of, where we really, uh, I think, were able to work a paradigm shift with tremendous public support that I think will forever put uh, Californians in much better stead on this march towards uh, resilient. A little less successful on the Bay Delta, which is probably not surprising, and a little bit less successful in some ways on reforming water rights, but we... I think we, we prioritize the reforms in water rights appropriately to lead to a more intelligent conversation about it down the line. I'm definitely curious about how, you know, the events of the past decade, the drought and the changes that have made have, have you know, created permanent change, if you will, in water conservation and efficiency. Uh, because you know you can't you've got you can't just make changes for that drought period and just get through it right you have to right. rethink how you approach things so yeah I'd love to hear more about that well I think it's it's an interesting thing too because efficiency has well it has multiple benefits of course right so that you're it's not only that you're using less water um, which you know maybe is more a more acute need in the arid west than it is back east but you're also saving energy you're saving the energy that it takes to move it you're saving the energy that it takes to treat it. You're saving the energy that it takes to heat it, which is a tremendous amount of um, energy in the residential and business sectors, all of which require um, emissions that lead to greenhouse gas emissions. So water conservation is also an important mitigation strategy as well as an adaptation strategy. Um a little hard to calculate it, but it's definitely true. So as a result, we did a couple of things in that arena. The first was uh, emergency mandatory conservation regulations in the urban sector for large urban communities, which is a, a fraction of all of our water agencies. We have a very fragmented system with thousands of small water agencies. We've got about 400 that serve more than 3,000 people, but they cover more than well over 90% of the population. And what we basically said was you needed to conserve 25% off 2013 water use. Now, that, that may mandate, seem like a big number. Does that mandate, that mandate goes to that particular water district or that municipality? Yeah. Who, who, okay. So the mandate went to urban California generally, but in, a, in what we needed to do quickly, we tiered it. Because there are some communities that have been saving for years. And there are other communities that were more profligate in their water use for a variety of reasons, sometimes because they didn't see the necessity in prior years. Um, and you didn't want, if you just do a flat percentage across everyone, it's not fair to the folks who've already saved a lot because it's just harder to conserve. So we tiered it between 6% and I think 36%, which may seem huge when people say 36%, but that went so water agencies that were using hundreds of gallons a day per capita 
where a place like San Francisco or Santa Cruz were already down to 41, 44 gallons per day per capita residential use. And that includes outdoors um, in places that have it. So if you're using hundreds, you either have a giant yard or you, you, um, you're, you're just not, you're just not um, using it as efficiently as you might. And, and we knew we could do that because we knew that over 50% of urban water use is on outdoor ornamental landscaping, much of which is lawns. We, you know, we want people to keep watering their trees, of course. We didn't want a desert landscape, but the idea of hemorrhaging that precious resource going down in local storages, if we might be in a 10-year drought, was frightening. Um, and so the governor made the call that uh, would clearly disrupt some budgeting and, and plans of local water agencies. But in the long run, it, you would be happier if you look back in 10 years, had it been a 10-year drought, to endure that pain in order to have a couple more years of water for basic sanitation and uh, commerce. So we, we did that. And frankly, the uh, public hit it out of the park. I mean, we hit 24%. So it was really impressive. Metropolitan Water District put out over whole, our largest wholesaler, largest one in the country, put out over $400 million in lawn rebates. Other agencies added another hundred. So it's over half a billion in Southern California. And it got snapped up like hotcakes. And that's because the public got it. A lot of times they had inherited the lawn with the house that wasn't, mm. you know, necessary for modern civilization. You know, small ones so, are important if you want to play ball with a kid, but it was, it was pretty incredible. So what you're saying, these rebates, this was saying to them, Hey, go in and, and remake your lawn with more native landscaping, more drought tolerant, less water intensive vegetation. Right. They were going for a paradigm shift and a multi-year change. I mean, it was a really important uh, investment. There also was all kinds of advertising by the Southern California Water Committee. They had the lawn dude out there talking about, <laughs> you know, not dealing with your lawn. It was it was actually a, it, it, the, the thing the governor kept saying was we're all in this together and the public responded really well. We also worked on and got past longer term efficiency legislation in the urban context to which we've transitioned into, which was taking that longer view of how to um, factor in efficiency as one of the tools towards local resilience that would also yield a greater greenhouse gas reductions, right? Because if you, you can always build, whether it's recycling or desal or those other things, you, you could extend your water resources, but it takes more energy. And so just intentionally working um, reasonable efficiency standards into the long-term water budgets of our agency just seemed like a, a smart thing to do. And that's now in process. Have the, oh, the other thing I want to yeah. say, this is important. You may be asking this. You want to know if the savings stuck. Exactly. That was yes. my question. <laughs> and the answer is remarkably because once you learn that you're, you know, it's hard to kill a lawn, let alone getting rid of a lawn. It's hard to kill a lawn. I mean, my point during the drought was it does not make sense to use water to make your lawn in a semi-arid climate in August looks like look like a Scottish golf course. I mean, you are wasting a precious resource for an aesthetic. That's actually not necessary to keep your lawn alive. And I think the thing that people found was 
once you learn that you don't need to use more water, you don't need to use more water. And so even with uh, torrential rains that followed the drought, um, about two-thirds of the savings, sometimes half, sometimes two-thirds of health, just because people have become more conscious of it in more parts of the state than historically had. I mean, Southern California had already done a, a pretty incredible job uh, to, is since the drought of the early 90s mm -hmm. uh, in replacing toilets and shower heads and, you know, having conservation be an epic, but they still had a lot of lawns and all of that. And so it's just gotten better. Yeah. Well, as we sit here in, in 2020, not a, not a great year for the record books, but uh, as we sit here in 2020, where is water policy and management headed now in California? What are, what are the areas of, of most importance and, and how is it looking to continue to evolve and kind of be a, be a leader? Well, it's slightly, it, it varies depending on where you are. I think urban California is where you're seeing this an astronomical uptick in um, creativity and focus on resilience. Uh, in the, there's the, obviously the conservation arena we talked about, but during the drought, we also, we put out over a billion and a half dollars from the state board alone in grants and loans to get recycled water projects off the drawing board and into construction in the ground. You also saw a sea change of attitudes on the part of the public about recycling. I think a lot of that is the drought, but a lot of it is a demographic shift where younger people have more faith in technology. I mean, it is not rocket science to treat water. It is the application of money and energy. So you've got to invest and you've got to manage it and you've got to be conscious of how you do it. But there are enormous goals now in Southern California. You, you always had, we always had Orange County Water District as the world leader in indirect potable reuse groundwater augmentation with, um, with reclaimed water, you had a lot in the San Gabriel Valley in terms of in really impressive recycling and stormwater capture. But now we have the city of LA under the leadership of Mayor Garcetti with a 70% reduction in reliance on imported water by 2035 goal, which is amazing because during the drought, they were 88% dependent upon metropolitan for imported water via the Delta and via the uh, Colorado River system. Um, and a goal of recycling 100% of their wastewater by 2035. And so they are going great guns in LA. At the same time, you also had passage of an amazing measure, measure um, um, M in Los Angeles, measure W, sorry, in Los Angeles, that in the whole county, um, uh, putting a fee on their uh, property that's going to raise $300 million a year to do multi-benefit stormwater capture projects, which is going to lead to incredible urban greening, which they need desperately, water going in to percolate into their groundwater basins for later. It, it, it ends up cleaning up Santa Monica Bay and the harbor by keeping water from um, pushing uh, urban contaminants like pesticides and dog droppings and the like, fertilizers, into the um, ocean and the harbor. I mean, it's a win-win-win um, effort that is a, a space to watch because that. So they're on speed in Southern California. You have uh, San Diego going for an enormous uh, indirect potable surface water augmentation um, plan because they don't really have a groundwater basin. I mean, they wish they had a groundwater basin you could put recycled water and uh, stormwater into, but if you don't have it, 
and in LA, they've got to deal with, you know, uh, cleaning up those basins because of mm. historic Superfund uh, toxicity. But again, it's all quite uh, doable. Metropolitan Water District is partnering with LA County Sand to do an even bigger groundwater augmentation, eventually direct potable project. And the Water Replenishment District has already finished making 4 million people uh, not dependent on imported water. So there's very exciting work happening. And the, we leverage that not just by putting money out there, but by streamlining our permitting for outdoor use, agricultural use, um, indirect potable groundwater augmentation, a suite of indirect potable for surface water augmentation and reservoir augmentation. And then the state board is working on direct potable uh, rules that are due by 2023, which make the dreaming of these much larger projects viable, which are the size and scale that we're going to need, given the amount we're going to lose on the Colorado River system and on the Delta system. So it's very exciting in the urban context. In the more rural context, we've got a couple of things going on that are exciting. One is this uh, historic groundwater management act, which has, um, uh, communities, particularly in the Central Valley, but other parts of the state as well, who have had to form groundwater sustainability agencies in order to figure out how to manage their groundwater basins. We didn't decree it from on high at the state. We just said, you got to do it and it's got to be past muster. And, um, and if you do it within certain time frames, the state will stay out of your face. If not, the state will come in and do it, have you report your pumping publicly uh, because someone's got to do it. And so far, it's actually going quite well. You know, People have met their first two deadlines in well over 90%. Now they're in the hard part of assessing whether these plans are adequate. And, you know, there are issues with them, to be sure, which we can talk about if you're interested, but they'll be able to cure them uh, if the Department of Water Resources you know, gets guidance out about where they're lacking and where they need to be fixed. Um, and then, of course, you have the State Water Board as the enforcement backstop and everybody's hoping including the water board that they don't actually have to exercise those mm. authorities the other thing that's happening and this is the most exciting thing and has to be the top priority of all these things is the the effort collective effort to get safe drinking water particularly to rural disadvantaged communities which is not something you can wave a magic wand it is a a complicated issue that requires not just capital dollars which we got hundreds of millions of capital dollars out in technical assistance to communities um, over the past uh, eight years, but it also requires subsidizing small communities because they can't even afford to hire a manager and the chemicals, et cetera, to run a system. And uh, just last year, the advocates from the disadvantaged community community and um, folks from agriculture that had built an alliance, that's a whole other story, actually got a funding source passed to help subsidize. It's not that much in the scheme of things, but it was difficult to get the funding um, source. And uh, Governor Newsom finally pulled it from some of the cap and trade funding. So now they have the money and the state water board, along with advocates and uh, a whole host of it, excuse me, advisors is working on accelerating the pace at which they can consolidate small agencies with larger ones, create new agencies by convening, you know, maybe six satellite um, communities, et cetera. And so they're, they're on their way to getting thousands more people um, clean drinking water, which is a huge, huge 
issue that we still are dealing with this in 2020. Sure. Yeah. I've, I've always wondered about that, why it just continues to persist and why, like you said, they just, you know, government just can't put the money toward it, lay the pipe out there and, and take care of people. Cause it's, it's not just a few hundred, it's a pretty good population of folks that don't have water or have inadequate water. Um, and it's, it's really surprising. It is. It's not unusual across the country. I think we just unearthed it and popularized it. I mean, the water board put out a series of reports in 2012 and 2013 based on the really good work that Thomas Harder at UC Davis had done that really displayed the significant hundreds of thousands, if not a million people in California that were potentially relying on contaminated groundwater. And we, we elevated um, the issue with the work of the amazing Community Water Center and uh, uh, Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability and Clean Water Action, who are my heroes. Um, who got the human right to water bill passed, but then kept at it um, in getting more tools to, to deal with it. And so it, it really became a big issue. And it, it, oddly enough, the drought with some of those communities also running out of water got way more attention at a statewide level than the fact that people had been drinking crappy water mm. for years. And so it highlighted and elevated the issue also in the legislature. Um, sure. And that was that I think that was crucial to us getting the support that we needed to get the tools we needed. Now, anywhere that you have irrigated agriculture over any period of time, you are going to have this problem. It's not someone going out and putting nitrogen on their field for the purpose of contaminating water. It's the externality of a socially productive uh, use. And so the trick for us is figure out how to um, limit excess nitrogen going into the groundwater, but also figuring out just if we can get treatment and adequate drinking water to people, then it gives agriculture more time uh, to pump and fertilize because it's not a contaminant for agriculture. So, I mean, there are other contaminants too, but it's one of the more ubiquitous ones in large parts of uh, California that have the small systems without the capacity to treat. I mean, there are plenty of other contaminants, but uh, nitrogen is more uh, ubiquitous, but that's going to be true in any state. The question is just whether that has agriculture. The question is whether it's out in the open or not. Yeah. Looking even more forward uh, into the future here and creating a sustainable water future for California, you've, you're looking at continued population growth and development and climate change is rearing its, its ugly head already. Um, what, what's the real challenge or what's the difficulty for California? You know, how, how can it, uh, it's making all this great progress, but you've got new obstacles, you know, continuing to rise there. Well, I think, you know, we are a hearty bunch and we do like <laughs> rising to the challenge and the occasion. Um, I, I, I'll tell you what the uh, what I see the biggest challenge is. Um, and then I want you to ask me what I'm most optimistic about, because yes. I, 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 there's that side of it, um, too, that I, it, it leaves me as an optimist. I mean, I'm an optimist in part by choice. Um, the same way uh, I was just reading a great quote from Nelson Mandela about that this morning, but I, it's a better way to live because mm. it enables you to move. Whereas, uh, if you're not an optimist, you can get paralyzed. Uh, and I think if you're it, it which is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you want to move, you have the best chance of moving forward. So being an optimist is a smart way to go. And plus then, um, you know, people will pleasantly surprise you. I think <laughs> our biggest challenge though is us. I mean, it's sort of like the pogo Thing. I think our biggest challenge is um, what I always call the challenge of ecosystem management rather than eco 
system management, which I, you know, people usually laugh and think I'm talking about big egos, but I'm not. I'm just talking about people, not being able to see the other people in the story, in the room, and our tendency to go into what Robert Greenfield calls our own self-congratulatory circles, where, you know, we all talk around the water cooler to the people who agree with us, and therefore the people who, so we must be right, right? And so the people who don't are the other, and they're evil. And we're seeing that taken to an extreme at the national level now. So it's very acute, but it's also true in um, smaller sets of circles. And we do have a very difficult time, for example, in dealing with the challenges of our Bay Delta, where you have the Bay Delta, I won't get into all the details because it takes a long time, but it's the hub of our water system as the San Joaquin River and its tributaries move northward, the Sacramento River and its tributaries move southward, and they all go through this fragile network of um, essentially peat islands that were uh, were once a beautiful tidal estuary, and they were reclaimed, reclaimed in the 19th century for very fertile farming in our delta arena, but it created these islands um, that are, in some cases because they're peat, and they've oxidized 20 and 30 feet below sea level. It, it's a fascinating thing to see, mm. and a wonderful set of historical communities. I mean, it's an amazing uh, place, but it's created this artificial network that fish are trying to find their way through as they migrate out to see if they're particularly iconic salmon uh, and migrate their way back in that miracle of nature. And we, you know, placed our pumping system for, you know, moving a big chunk of that water south, right at the bottom of that, in the mm. middle of that estuary, which is like the, you know, it, it just makes it a very complex system. And so you have, um, you know, we've basically taken more water out of this ecosystem than any ecosystem can bear. We've changed its temperature and its um, mix of uh, species. So warmer water invasive species do well, but colder water native species have a problem. I'm grossly oversimplifying this. Sure. But the, the human piece of it is, fish versus farmers or fishermen versus farmers, farmers north versus farmers south, farmers who are senior versus farmers who are junior. And so it's become the hub of conflict as well and finger pointing. And it, it's just we've had periods of agreement, the Bay Delta Accords of the 1990s that I was honored to be a part of when I was at EPA, the Delta Reform uh, legislation of 09 that I was also honored to be a part of when I was at NRDC, um, but it's eluded us in the present day in figuring out how do we get that right balance of flows and habitat restoration so that we don't destroy our natural heritage and our farming communities that depend on farming in the Delta and uh, fresh water co coming through the Delta for them and um, uh, fishermen who rely on it. I mean, so we, it's the hub of uh, conflict and we haven't quite overcome our tendency to batten down the hatches or not give up one drop, particularly when you have a political overlay that accentuates the differences. I, I've often said, and this was no disrespect intended and no party in mind, it's, it's, this is a bipartisan problem at times. Um, I just wish if we could get politics, lawyers, and lobbyists out of it that, that benefit by the discord, and you just had the Hmm. operators and farmers and fishermen and environmentalists and Delta folks in a room, I think you could actually come up with a way you could balance it all. But there's a political overlay that just makes that 
incredibly difficult, which is, which is just too bad. On the issue of retooling our urban centers and integrated water management, you know, in the Bay Area, not just in Southern California, I'm very optimistic and all of that is, is on speed. So I think we can, I mean, if you think about urban water use being uh, over half of it being um, or outdoor ornamental landscaping, between that and more efficient fixtures inside the house, um, I think urban California can do uh, just fine um, if they manage more precisely. Agriculture is going to have more of a problem, although more precision agriculture will certainly help us produce even more with less. Um, but we've, uh, we've, we, there's an extent there in particular where folks have overpumped their groundwater basins that is going to be hard to deal with without pretty extreme demand management. And so there are conversations about which fields to fallow and how to compensate farmers. There's some really creative work being done by some very thoughtful farmers and people from the environmental community that I have my fingers crossed over. Yeah, that human ingenuity, right, will we'll yeah. persevere, will come through. Well, I wanted to also hear a bit about what you're doing at Stanford. Um, you became a fellow there pretty fairly recently, um, and it's obviously a premier university and their, their center for water in the West. What's, what are you doing and, and what's happening at Stanford with water? Well, it's, it's a wonderful program that I've admired for a long time, uh, led by Buzz Thompson, who's probably one of the most respected people in Western water, not just California water law, very thoughtful person. And, and what the uh, Center for Water in the West, which is a joint program of the Woods Institute for the Environment and the Lane Center for the American West, is a, a lot of convening uh, of uncommon dialogues. It becomes a neutral space for people to come in and really talk from all uh, quarters about uh, particular issues in water, not just innovations, but also how do, you, how do you bridge those traditional divides in a safe, neutral, third-party space? Uh, and a lot of really great researchers and writers working on issues, both doing the research that can, for example, help people do more effective water transfers or groundwater management, um, but also, you know, what are the policies that can help us um, have a more um, efficient and effective uh, water future? And so I'm in this wonderful fellowship, the William C. Landreth Fellowship, and he's just a, a lovely man. Um, but also it's designed to bring people who have been out in the world or at other academic institutions in um, to Stanford for some period of time. It varies mm. um, on the addition. I have additional funding, so I will be there uh, for quite a while um, to um, think, think creative thoughts along with the uh, the, the permanent staff at Stanford, but bring in some fresh air and some fresh ideas for me. I'm in the kind of seat where I'm bringing in the practitioner's awareness of what it takes to actually implement policy versus thinking big thoughts. And they're, they're very interested in that. Um, and, uh, and then I'm, you know, part of what I do is uh, lecture at seminars and classes, advise graduate students and undergraduate students. And it just, um, helps the, um, the creativity of the academy, uh, so to speak. I'm going to be working on a whole range of uh, subjects. Uh, water rights, of course, will be a piece of it. I'm trying to think about where are those arenas more unwell situated mm. to pull together those unlikely allies for uncommon uh, dialogue. I'm really going to be focusing on climate change adaptation and water because I think that, particularly in the urban context, but not exclusively, I think 
Um, that's an arena where there's a lot of ability for lift. I think that it's been given, it's starting to change pretty dramatically, even at the global level, but uh, historically folks have focused on uh, mitigation of climate change and not adaptation because it was seen as capitulation. And I think, I think in retrospect, that was a mistake for the movement because I think the stories of adaptation are stories of hope and change, but also they make real what the threat is in a way that talking about parts per billion or million in the atmosphere or degrees centigrade is not something regular people can relate to. And I'm, I'm more of a regular person. That's sort of my contribution to government and all of that is I'm just like a regular person. Um, and, uh, so I think there's uh, some exciting work happening globally, and so it mixes my both my international and my urban uh, background. I'll be working a bit on um, the amazing revolution in environmental technology that will make a lot of this more doable and more um, um, cost-effective. I mean, it's very exciting what's happening in the arena of sensors and remote sensing and big data where communities can save up to like 90% of what they were putting aside to fix pipes, for example, on a calendar um, uh, methodology, they can now have sensors that let them target those meters or those um, parts of the pipe that are most likely to break and target their money there, which doesn't mean we'll spend 10% of what we once spent. It means we can get twice as much, three times as much, four times as much done with the same local dollar. And you think about leaks can be 20, 30, 40% of water loss also in the urban arena. So yeah, I mean, think about water loss, you think about lawns, you think about fixtures and you think, well, we can, we can live pretty high quality lives with a lot less water. Well, all these things that you've talked about during this conversation, uh, the, the adaptations of the past decade, what's happening now, the work at Stanford, the thing that keeps jumping out at me is, this is these are also big economic drivers, these projects and these technologies and these solutions. Um, you know, it's this is not just doing what's good for the planet and making sure we have water. I mean, this these are great, exactly. jo great jobs, great investments in communities, quality of life benefits. So, but yeah, there's, there's, there's an incredible return on the investment that's not just having clean water. Exactly. And it's similar, analogous in some way. Energy is different in many important ways, but it's analogous in that what you have is a fight over the old way of doing things and a new way of doing things. So it's not a question of jobs versus the environment. It's a question of which jobs, mm. right? So do you invest in the jobs in distributed solutions that may be more um, both economic and locally resilient than the big giant projects from on high, um, it's more complicated, but again, modern technology, computers, the internet, um, <laughs> actually make, make it viable, uh, to manage things that we couldn't manage before. It, it sensors allow you, um, as a regulator, for example, even on the water quality side to be able to trust, but verify, mm. right? Because historically we've trusted through grab samples and you know, audits, you know, and paper. Well, we're going to be able to actually put monitors in there and we can see are people meeting 24 seven are people meeting their requirements that then allows you to be more creative and strategic in your regulation to say, okay, we're not going to decree the method you get there by. So figure out the most cost effective way to meet our standards. You got to meet our standards and we're going to be able to check it. I mean, it's a, it's a revolution in, 
thinking and I'm hoping it also <laughs> creates a revolution in relationships. Uh-huh. You know, it doesn't help for the people who prefer obscurity um, to allow them to do their business, but it does benefit the newer technologies that want to break through um, and provide more information to the public uh, on their own water use, on the their own water quality, on their energy use, etc. Um, and so there's a there's clearly a paradigm shift and a big war over who um, who makes the money in, <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. But there is an opportunity for us to have a more kind of humane and uh, resilient set of systems out there. I'll just mention that I have two uh, products in my house that are from California-based companies that help with my water efficiency. Uh, this, this was not a planned promo, but I, was, I have uh, High Sierra Showerheads. They're based up in the Sierra Nevada foothills, and uh, they, were, they were some of the early water-efficient fixtures. Uh, and then I use this thing called Flume, um, and it was some graduates from Cal Poly, and uh, it goes on my water meter, and I have an app on my phone that tells me my, my water use by the minute if I have a leak. I can see how much water each thing's using and all that stuff. So ingenuity that came out of California around water there on both fronts. That's great. I mean, (laughs) that information, having people have information about their water use is so important. I mean, again, when you think there are leaks all through the system, but there are leaks Mm. in the home and being able to catch them quickly, either through having your own system or having a smart meter where your your, uh, water agent can say, hey, your water use just spiked at 2 p.m., 2 a.m., Mm. You know, you're having a big party at 2 a.m. <laughs> right, you right. got a you got a water leak. Toilets that you running. Take care of right away. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Felicia, uh, I, I know we could talk for hours more and do follow-up episodes and all that. I, I really appreciate your time and the perspective and look forward to following what's going on there at Stanford, the, the Water in the West Center and, and all of your work. Oh, thank you. No, that's only the beginning of it. We have all kinds of work on the natural resources side as well with carbon sequestration, ecosystem restoration, uh, dam, dealing with dam removal. There's, mm. there's a lot happening on the natural side as well as people are trying to figure out how to value rivers, make the case, but also manage them better for our common heritage. So it's a very exciting place to be. I'm like, it's like being in a candy store. Ah, awesome. Well, I'll follow up and, and find some episodes uh, on those different topics for sure. But thank you so much. Thank you for asking. And I'm, I'm happy to give you other ideas, some of the other great people there. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop.